So as I begin, I just want to relate some of the humorous things that have been going on and around us since we started this Bible study on, well, spiritual warfare. So if you haven't been coming on Wednesday nights, it has been really, really entertaining over in the barn because we have had pretty much everything that could go wrong with both the visual of our presentations, the audio of our mics, pretty much name anything and it has gone haywire. So for instance, the last time I preached before this past Wednesday, uh, the batteries in my mic pack went out. And so about half the sermon, I just projected my voice as loud as I could, and I probably will eventually come in here one Sunday afternoon and re-preach that message so we have an audio recording of it, so we can get it updated to the website. Uh, Matt had all sorts of issues running the presentations. We've had all sorts of audio problems. So Wednesday night, this past week, when I was preaching the same message, we were having massive feedback issues with my mic such that, well, as you can see, I, I kind of pace. I'm a walking talker. I don't present standing still. And I had a space of about here to about here, and really no further forward and back. I pretty much had, just because of the shape of the barn, the way we've got it configured, I've only got maybe two feet deep in the barn to walk in the first place. So I'm just kind of pacing this little box like a tiger, caged tiger, just... I considered grabbing the podium, but I'm pretty sure I'd have just been picking it up and carrying it with me everywhere. But, you know, these things happen. The enemy does not like us to talk about him, because the enemy's, one of his greatest weapons, one of his greatest things, you know, the famous quote, the greatest lie the devil ever got mankind to believe was that he did not exist. And he wants us to remember that. So I, I did not say this Wednesday night, and you know what, I think it's relevant because as leaders, as pastors, we fight spiritual warfare just as much as you guys do. And so at the beginning of this sermon series, uh, well, most of you know I'm on staff because I'm trying to complete the requirements to commission as an officer, and I was looking to go with the Navy to commission in as a chaplain. Well right about the time I was preaching my first message in this series, I was informed by the Navy that I was deemed medically ineligible to join because of a surgery I had when I was 17 years old. And that pretty much devastated me because, well, for the last several years of my life, that is what I have been striving for. That is, without a question of myself, of Pastor Tony, of pretty much anyone who's walked with me in this spiritual journey, They've pretty much known this had to be what I was doing. God's laid too many stepping stones in this path not to see it happen. And it was actually uh, the day after I got the news at a lunch. Uh, Tuesdays, a bunch of men at the church meet up for lunch. And I just was having a bad day, and Matt kind of asked me about it. And I just said, oh, it's been a rough, rough day. I hadn't really said anything. Uh, Tony, I think, was the only person outside of my family at that point that knew. And... He said, well, you know what? Go figure. We're doing a sermon series on spiritual warfare, and you're experiencing spiritual warfare. And I said, you know what? I hadn't thought about it that I said to myself, I didn't say this out loud, but I was just kind of like, huh. That's, uh, that's an interesting point. 
And I'm not going to lie, I was pretty depressed for a couple of weeks, actually. Um, I ended up taking a vacation a couple of weeks ago, got away for a little bit, and God just kind of used that to recharge me, kind of refresh me. Uh, talking to a few people over the last couple of weeks have really bolstered me back up, and I say all this to say, warfare is real. We do get attacked by the enemy, and every time we're attacked by the enemy, if we let the enemy hit with that attack, if we do sink into a depression, if we do withdraw from our spiritual family, it, can has, the, it has the exact effect he's looking for. He wants us to be isolated. He wants us to be alone. And thankfully, through the men in my D group, through the other staff pastors, through random people God put in my path just for the sake of putting them there, I'm, I'm back, back to where I need to be. And just so you know, I'm pursuing the, there's two more branches of the military that have chaplains, so I'm, con, I'm still uh, pursuing those as well. So I've not given up the fight. But this is a real thing. And so, as we talk about that, this fellowship, the fellowship of the church, is one of the two major areas God's put in our lives that really allow us to be protected, that allow us to function in the way He wants us to. It's where we worship, it's where we serve. Coming together as a group of people explicitly for the purpose of worshiping God and then serving Him in the capacity he, he has given us to do is one of the few things we really have to go out in this world with. And it's really one of the few areas we can kind of huddle up and be safe for a little bit. We can weather the storm of the enemy's attacks. But there's two. The second one is our homes. It's where we live our lives and do our mission because the first mission field each and every one of us has is our neighborhoods, our neighbors, our friends and family. Two places we feel safe. Two places God has really given us to kind of sit back, recharge, and go back out into the world. You know who else knows this is a fact? Our enemy. Our enemy knows this. And if we allow him, those two fortresses, those two places of respite and care, can become two of the places we are most attacked in our lives. And so, whereas the rest of the series leading up to this point, we've been talking about specific tactics, tonight I really want to talk to you about how to deal with that, how to kind of draw all these attacks together, and how they actually hit us, both at the church and at our homes. So, you'll see our first subheading is Satan Goes to Church. And frankly, he's been to church more times than anybody in this room combined. He loves to go to church. And just as another aside, uh, when I say Satan, by and large, I'm talking about Satan's people, Satan's agents, Satan's minions, the little demons he scurries out into the world. Because by and large, most of us 
don't take this the wrong way, you're not worth his time. Satan's one thing. Satan is a creature. He is a created being. He is not God. Therefore, he can't be everywhere and anywhere at the same time. He can't do anything he wants to do. He can't know everything there is to know because he's not God. And we love to sometimes, I think, give him too much power. We love to make him almost on equal footing with God. But he's not. And so when we say Satan, in this series we've been saying Satan, these are Satan's tactics. These are his will. But chances are it's not actually him enforcing it on your life. Have there been people in the history? Yes. We know from Scripture that Satan tempted Jesus directly. And you know what? I completely believe that. Beyond getting into any, you know, is the Bible true, is the Bible not true, however you want to debate, phrase that debate, if you don't believe that the Son of God, if God himself walking on this earth didn't warrant his, Satan's undivided attention all 33 years he stood on this earth, I don't know what else to tell you. If any moment in history deserved Satan to be there, front and center, running everything himself, it was when Jesus was walking around here. Some other people, probably Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, William Tyndall, the person who first began to translate the Bible into English. World leaders probably get his attention quite a bit. Most of us, however, thankfully, we don't have to deal with him directly. But we still have to deal with his tactics. We still have to deal with his attack. So the church is our greatest fortress against him. Because, as I said, it's where we meet communally. It's where we come together to worship and to serve. If God's presence isn't in here, we're in big trouble. That said, Jesus cast out some demons while he was in a synagogue. In fact, looking in Luke, one of his first miracles is just this. So in Luke 4.33, And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha-ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! Come out of him! And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. There we go. Luke chapter 4. Jesus cast out demons within a church. So, there are many places within the church. And so, as I said, we're going to talk about the church and we're going to talk about the home. The church is a big, huge organization. There's a lot of moving parts to this. The home, I'm going to take a little bit different approach, and we'll get there in a moment. But when I'm talking about the church, I'm going to hit several different areas. And then I just want to give you some basic ideas about how to deal with those areas. And so the first, probably unsurprisingly, 
is right up here, the pulpit. The pulpit's a very obvious place to start because obviously if the person leading the church, if the person claiming to be professing God, if out of the mouth of a preacher comes the lies of Satan, a lot of harm can be done to the body. And this can happen a lot of different ways. First and foremost, if the person leading God's sheep is not a believer, he becomes an incredible tool for the enemy. Now don't get me wrong, you can get up and preach a good sermon without the power of the Holy Spirit. And by good, I'll mean technical. You can read the scripture, you can know the languages, you can read the commentaries, you can listen to other people talk about it, you can form a, quote, good-sounding sermon. But there's one little key thing missing in all of that that a non-believer does not have. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank God every time I have to stand up here and talk that what I say doesn't really matter. Now granted, I have to do my homework, I have to do my study, I do my languages, I read my commentaries, I read my books, I listen to other sermons on the topic. But at the end of the day, if I've done my part, God's going to do his a hundred times over. If I'm not a believer, that hundredfold increase isn't there. And so, of course, it's not going to be as powerful. It's not going to be as impactful. Plus, especially in a sermon series like this, where we're not dealing verse by verse in a passage of Scripture, it can be real easy to go off on a wild tangent. It can go easy. You can easily go into ideas that, while may sound biblical, may sound good, aren't really what God wants you to say in that moment. And you can lead people down the wrong path. So Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves, sorry, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, and their end will correspond to their deeds. So yes, the enemy does put people of his choosing in positions of power within the church, or in places where people will hear them, get their ears tickled, as we like to say, by teachings that come from elsewhere than God the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Some of these false teachers can be incredibly popular. And boy, howdy, they look like they can, they look at their following God. To the uninitiated, if I said, oh, let's say a big church, South Texas, around Houston area, big, big, big following, 
You probably know who I'm talking about without me having to say it. Is that person preaching in the power of God? Nope. Paul says again, and this is on your handout in 2 Timothy, those having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. It's easy to get swayed by these people. Why? Because we like to hear what we want to hear. We want to believe what we want to believe. And if someone tells us something we like to hear, we probably want to hear it again and hear more like it. Is the gospel necessarily what we want to hear? No. Is the gospel what we need to hear? Absolutely. We don't always want what we need, and we don't always need what we want. There are plenty of people out there who are more than happy to give it to us. These people speak just enough truth to get people to believe their false teachings. What's the old saying? The greatest lie is the one that has a bit of truth to it. And it makes sense. If you don't know something's a lie, but everything surrounding it is more or less what you understand to be truth, you're more inclined to believe it. But it doesn't make it right. 99% truth and 1% lie is still a lie. Furthermore, these people will even truly believe they are doing the will of God and that what they are doing is on the side of righteousness. So let's go back to Scripture to prove this. When we first meet Paul, what is he doing? Well, when we first meet Paul, he's holding the cloaks of the people that are about to stone Stephen. But when we meet Paul actually as a character as someone who is actually the focal point of Luke's narrative. He's hunting Christians. He is dragging them out of their homes to the Sanhedrin to stand trial. And while the, Luke is very, very quick to point out Paul did not have an immediate hand in any of the executions, you know he knew what he was doing. And you know what? I bet he was proud of it for a long time. In fact, he says he was proud of it. And why wouldn't he be? This moron, this heretic, this bumpkin from the middle of Nazareth comes down and claims to be God himself. Now, he got what he deserved. He hung on a tree. But all these crazy people, once this guy was killed, they continued to spread out. In fact, they got more fervent in preaching his message. What's wrong with these people? Don't they know they're blaspheming God? And he believed that right up until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Which, as David pointed out, is what I feel like under these spotlights right now. <laughs> I feel like I'm blinded by the light of God right now. We can do amazingly righteous-sounding things, and be so steeped in sin we don't even realize it. And if that person happens to be a leader, it does that much more damage. 
But up here is not the only place Satan likes to attack. You know what? He likes to go after y'all's seat too. And that makes sense because, you know what, if he can get up here, he can do a whole lot of damage. But you know what? It's a lot easier to sneak into down there. I will say probably a person who confesses God but lives like the world is probably one of Satan's greatest tools. And it makes perfect sense. Why should the world care what we have to say if we don't look any different than them? Why should what we have to do, why should our actions not reflect our words? In fact, Jesus himself said the enemy would place agents among us in the church. Matthew 13, Jesus himself said the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Jesus himself warned us that people would be brought in among us just for the sake of disrupting us, just for the sake of making our lives a little bit harder. Because there are a lot of people. I mean, look, well, not this morning, but most mornings, there's about 450, 500 people in this church. That's a fantastic thing. But it also means that's a few extra people that can get sprinkled among us just for the sake of adding to the, adding to the discord. That's not to say we shouldn't invite people to church. doesn't mean we shouldn't bring the stranger to church. It just means that the enemy can then use that if we're not careful. In a book I read leading up to this topic, preparing for this, the guy said, it's easier to join the church than it is a local country club. Do you know what? Praise be to God that that's the case. I thank God that we don't have a huge wall to climb over to get in here. But it works both ways. Another area we can be attacked is the worship service. Now, I was laughing this morning as uh, Pastor Brian was speaking about his little thing about worship because we had not talked, as far as I know. He did not hear this sermon from Wednesday night, obviously, because he was doing his own thing in the student center. Yet here we are both talking about the worship service because it's such an amazing moment. In fact, I call it here a joyous and wondrous gift of God that we can come together as a group of believers Lift our voices to God, give Him praise, give Him honor, give Him glory out of our own mouths. Our dirty, filthy, sinful mouths can sing the praises of God. And He accepts it as a beautiful, fragrant aroma. How? Just sit on that for a second. That we are a people of unclean lips, but when we lift up our mouths in worship, it's considered the most pleasing thing God can experience. But worship must be orderly. It's on this topic in 1 Corinthians. Paul gives the famous quote, For God is not a God of chaos, but of order. 
Or if you go through the ESV, he's not a God of confusion, but of peace. And this is the cap. This is the end piece to a long discussion on what's going on in worship in Corinth. Specifically, they've got a bunch of people standing up and speaking in tongues. Now, when I say a bunch, I mean it's probably about four or five people, but in a congregation that probably was about 30, that's a pretty decent proportion of the people. That's about 20% of the people stand up. And according to Paul, they're all just kind of gibbering off on their own direction. There's no coordination here. So that's why Paul says, if one has to get up, make sure it's accompanied by a translator. And that that translator is translating correctly words of praise and honor to God. If we just all stand up and start screaming whatever comes to our head, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. And going back to inviting our friends, our family, and strangers off the street, if they come in and see that, they're going to go, what on earth are these people doing? What is going on here? And you know what? I would probably too. I've been a believer for 20-something years, probably 30 actually at this point. If I walked into a church doing that, I'd be like, okay, uh, I'm just going to sneak out during the next uh, prayer session here. But this does not mean that there is any prescribed type or style of worship. In fact, I promise you what Pastor Tony's experiencing down in Brazil is probably a far cry different than what we did here this morning. And you know what? That's amazing. It is absolutely fantastic that not only does God allow us to worship Him with ourselves, He allows us to worship Him in a way that makes sense to us. The only requirement is that there's something some sort of order. There's some sort of pattern to it. You know, I really debated on this one. I debated long and hard on this one. But at the same time, I have seen business meetings be some of the, I'll be, was very judicious and say heated arguments. You know, it was actually over a business meeting that I left a prior church. Because there was a direction the church, well, in my estimation, which admittedly I was not at my most spiritual point in my life at that point, but even I could tell at that point, the church needed to go in a direction. It was pretty obvious. But a lot of people didn't like the direction it was one that needed to go. And I saw a group of leaders, deacons, teachers, elders, just people who had been in the church for decades, come up and in the business meeting, they had actually drafted a lawyer. And if the vote did not go the way they wanted to, they were ready to sue the church over some petty, minor bylaw violation dating back to Lord knows when that still happened to be in the books because no one had amended it because why bother? This was such an extremely rare situation, but they were actually willing to bring legal action against the church if this vote didn't go the way they wanted it to. And that is pretty much the moment I left that church. Or I stuck around a little bit longer. I was teaching a class. I wanted to finish that up. But that was pretty much the moment I decided I had no business being here any longer than I needed to be. 
The enemy is used great at using godly people wrapped up in incredibly wrong ideas to hurt the local body. And again, going to Scripture, we see this. In Acts 15, Luke records that there were some come from Judea who were preaching that to become one with Christ, you had to be part of the circumcision, i.e., you had to join Judaism. Paul said, uh, no, don't think so. So, Paul scoots himself down to uh, Jerusalem, and we have the Jerusalem Council. There, the apostles decide that, you know what, no, we don't need to add anything to the gospel. But there was sure a lot of people that thought that you did. So again, even in Scripture, we see this. Unforgiving spirits. So last week, if you heard, if you were with us, Pastor Tony spoke about Satan being the accuser. Satan loves to accuse us of our sins, drag every little thing we've done wrong out before us so that at the end of the day, we get jumbled up, we stop being as useful for God, and we get landlocked. Pretty much exactly what I described at the beginning of the sermon myself. I felt inadequate to do the work I needed to do. Do you know what? Satan's got a dirty little secret. Sometimes he's good enough, he doesn't even have to do it. Sometimes our brother and sisters are more than happy to do it for us. Jealousy, ambition, arrogance, and self-righteousness are all weapons the enemy used to drive a wedge between us. And if you want to know where I got that list, look no further than the next line in your handout. James chapter 3, 14 to 16. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So how do we... How do we kick that little dirt bag out of our church? Well, glad you asked. I'm about to tell you. And eight little bullet points. First thing, we have to practice biblical discernment when we're selecting leaders. Now, obviously, that affects the pulpit, but it affects way more than that. It affects our elders. It affects our deacons, Sunday school teachers, music leaders, anyone who has any sort of authority, leadership, or just simply is mentoring someone else in the church should follow some basic guidelines. Now, what are they? Now, buckle in, kids. It's going to be a sec. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul tells his young disciple exactly what those qualifications would be. So again, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. You know what? They're good enough. We're going to read them all right now. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well. 
with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's stop there. Above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, not quarrelsome, doesn't love money, manages his own home well, keeps his children submissive, able to care for the church, not recently converted, must be well thought of by outsiders. How often have you asked, how does your person, how is your person viewed at work? How are they viewed by the community? How often have we asked these questions of people? Well, I can tell you not every church does. Just go back to our previous conversation about Houston, Texas, and that should pretty well prove that. Furthermore, let's look a little bit further. Starting in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You know, for a guy who later says, take a little wine with your meal, he really bragging on drinking in this one. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Must also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know what? There's a lot of parallels in those two passages. There's a lot of similarities there. So that should tell us any time we look to bring a leader forward, we maybe need to dig a little deeper into them than sometimes we want to. Because, well, the enemy might just use that against us if we don't. Furthermore, once someone is in a position of leadership, test them. First off, against Scripture. If a preacher, and you'll notice I use quotation marks there, can't say the name of Jesus and can't preach out of the Word, maybe we got a problem. Which is why, if you'll notice, I've been very clear to back up a lot of what I've said with Scripture. Because <laughs> I am not going to be hip, a hypocrite up here. So 1 John 4, again, backing myself up. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this, by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. If you ever hear something you don't agree with, check it. Now, if you don't like it, and it's stepping on your toes, and it comes from Scripture, God's probably convicting you. God's probably trying to grow you in that moment. If you hear something you don't like, and you can't back it up anywhere... 
chances are the person was probably wrong. But do not let your own feelings be that gauge. Let the Word of God back up or disprove what anyone else has to say. Because that is the only measure we can do honestly. Next up, be active in the ministry of the church. Now, I almost feel like I'm preaching to the choir on this one because if you've never been here before, we are an incredibly active body. But you know what? There are plenty of people who come in, and this is churches across this nation and across our world, that they will sit down, they will enjoy the service for an hour, they will get up and go, and that is their Jesus in for the week. You know what? That does not work. Why? Because Christianity, folks, is a full-contact sport. It is not a spectator one. It is not something you can do sitting at home in front of a TV. It is something you do out there in the world. Now, you know what? Some people, all they can do is at home because of whatever reason God has put them in that place. And if they're serving God in that position, they're serving God in that position. But most people who are sitting at home, flipping through the TV, ain't serving God. So if you're not with God, you're probably not in the right place. Encourage one another. Hold each other accountable. You know what? We always seem to find a way to bring D groups into a sermon. But you know what? There's a reason for that. Because they are an amazing tool. And this is in particular one area that I don't think you can get anywhere else. You have to have a deep, intimate relationship with someone for them to really be able to hold you accountable. You have to have someone you can go up to and say, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I can't handle it. And then those people can hold you up and keep you accountable and keep you going. You know what? I've got a D group, and the guys in that group are absolutely fantastic. And I love them, and honestly, I probably don't do enough in that regards myself. But here I can stand up here and say, I need to work on it. You know what? A couple of them are in here, so you now know another thing to hold me accountable to, guys. <laughs> but we've got to do this. We've got to help each other out. That's another reason we meet in this place. That's another reason God gave us this body is so we have those connections. So we have those relationships. Because we can't do it on our own. Like I said in the beginning, isolation is one of our worst enemies, but it is our enemy's favorite place for us to be. Be respectful of the worship time. Like I said, it's, I was seriously cracking up in my pew this morning because I believe Brian said pretty much the exact same thing I said here. It's not about us. Now, respect for the worship, I completely agree with everything he said. It's not just standing in a pew, reading some thoughtless words off a screen. You know what? I've done that a few times myself, probably more than I care to admit, honestly. It's also not disrupting the worship. It's trying your best to get here on time to be ready to go. Because, again, we have to have an order to this. And part of the order is simply the timing. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but... These TVs hung around the hallway here. I was actually the one to put those up before I came on staff. Uh, I, those of you don't know, I did IT work for Best Buy for years before I got to my current job. And so Tony just called me up and said, hey, what, do we, what would it take to do this? 
So we hung them up. Then one of the purposes was to just remind people it's time to get going. So be respectful of the worship time. Worship is one of the few things we give to God. It is one of the few things we do for God that really, can God do it himself? I don't know if I want to answer that question, honestly. But it's one of the few things we can genuinely give back to God. That we can genuinely, honestly do for God is worship. Pray to understand God's will, even if you don't like it. You know what, there's been plenty of times God's told me to do something, and I'm just like, nope, don't want to. No bueno, no want to do. But you know what? I've sinned sometimes and not done it. And then I've done it and been blessed beyond measure. So you know what? Try to figure out what God's will is. Finally, be gracious and merciful to one another just as you want them to be with you. Solomon says in Proverbs 22, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. And quarreling and abuse will cease. Now I fully believe in Solomon's day he actually meant kick the person out. You know, boot him out the door. But let's look at this on this side of the cross. Let's drive out the scoffing heart. Let's drive out the judgmental mindset, adopting ourselves the mind and body of Christ. Maybe we can move forward a little bit better in love. Oh, all right, everybody breathe. And you know what's sad is this is honestly one of the shorter sermons in this series. <laughs> so let's talk about the home. I talked about a lot of things in the church, because as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of places Satan can dig in. But I'm going to take a different path in the home, because I genuinely believe that what I'm about to say is very true, and God put it on my heart to say it this way. If Satan can drive a wedge between the husband and the wife... He is one. There's a lot of areas he can attack to the church. There's a lot of areas he needs to attack the church. But I genuinely believe in the home, there are a couple of avenues. But there's only one that really matters. And that is the relationship between the husband and the wife. He is really good at attacking us here, too. In fact, you can very much say the first place he drew blood against us was in the home, specifically in the garden. When he attacked Adam and Eve, it was within God's perfect garden. Untouched by sin, undefiled by everything that is going to plague us since that day. And all he had to do was pull Eve aside, whisper in her ear, and get her to act in a way that, def that offended God.
And you know what? Look what he succeeded with that one little act. Look what he accomplished. Now, I will say a word. Not all failed marriages, not all failed relationships are the work of the enemy. Because you know what? At the end of the day, we're all fallen, sinful creatures. We can fail. We can mess a lot of things up in this world without Satan and his minions having to lift a finger. Simply because of who and what we are. And with that in mind, I'm not saying everything that happens comes from him. Because again, I don't want to give him more power than he has. I don't want to give him more authority or more credibility than he already owns. But that said, he loves to attack us in this place. And so I'm just going to focus on one simple idea to close out this message. The best way I have found to keep your marriage safe is to, proper, is to practice proper intimacy. That intimacy is the greatest weakness the enemy can expose in our marriage as well. Now, if I turn as red as my shirt at this next statement, please forgive me. <laughs> Intimacy is not just sex. And yes, I just said that on a recording that's going on the website later this week. Woo! Probably not listening to this message down the road. <laughs> Probably not going to say any more about that either. So, let's define Intimacy. If it's not just the physical kind, and you know what? It's a part of it. There's no way to talk around that. Physical is a part, but it is only a part of what biblical intimacy is. So I want to define it this way, and I actually did not make this up. I actually pulled this from the material I teach all the time in my other job. Let's look at intimacy as this. Let's use the phrase, into me see. Or, as I like to put it more simply, become a PhD in your spouse. Know them better than anybody save the Lord God himself. And in this way, you are going to forge a stronger marriage. It is a simple-sounding thing to do. However, it is incredibly difficult. So I've already revealed some stuff about me. I'll reveal a little bit more. Before I took this job, before I took my job at the, with the Navy, my marriage was on the rocks. In fact, many of you don't know this. My wife had actually left me. Now she was going on a trip to visit some friends in Texas. And she was going to be gone for about two weeks. This trip was pre-planned. But you want to know what? It had nothing to do with the fact that she left. And you know what else? I deserved it. I was a terrible husband. 
I was a terrible husband eight years into seminary. I had been, quote, serving God for pretty much our entire marriage. But I had let the intimacy in our relationship drop down to zero. In fact, we'd probably gone negative. Why? Because I spent all my time studying. I spent all my time in the books, preparing, moving forward. And when I wasn't doing that, I was trying to recover from doing that. I had very little time for her. I had very little time for friends. Once my children came, I had no time for them either. She was functionally a single mother sleeping in the bed with someone else. So what I'm about to say, I say from personal experience. I am not proud of this, but praise be to God, he is, it has made me the man I am today. It has made me the servant of God that I am today. Now, obviously, if you don't know, my wife and, our, wife and I are happily married. We did mend that relationship. We did begin to practice proper intimacy. Am I perfect at it all the time? No. Is she perfect at it all the time? No. But we also practice grace and mercy with each other and allow ourselves to mess up every once in a while. So how can we do this? Wives, what your husband needs is respect. And no, I'm not going to sing. Guys want recognition. Guys want people to see that their accomplishments are recognized by other people. That people see what they do. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose either. Just a clap on the back and an attaboy every once in a while is enough. Now this bleeds over a little bit with words of encouragement if you happen to know anything about the five love languages. Another thing I practice quite regularly in my job. But this is a little deeper. This is kind of ingrained into men. And understand I'm talking in generalities. This is kind of broad stroke stuff here. Please do not come up to me afterwards and explain why this isn't true for your, you or your spouse. I get it. This is not 100%. Give me a little grace, please. But this, in general, is a good place to start. Men want to be the head of their household. Men like to be in charge. Even when they don't like to be in charge, they like to be in charge. And if you don't know what that means, go ask a guy. <laughs> Biblically, the man needs to be keeping his household safe. And they need to do this as a spiritual head. And sadly, in our culture, in our nation... Men, we are failing so miserably at this. As a group, we are failing our biblical mandate here. When men want respect and authority they have not earned, or they do not get what they have earned, they can easily become tyrants. If they can't get it, by volunteer, they'll take it by force. If that respect is not given, he'll look for it outside the marriage. 
Now, this can be in an affair situation. But you know what else a man can have an affair with? His job, his hobbies, his friends. Anywhere he can get that respect, anywhere he can get what he does not have at home, he will find it. Now, guys, your turn. What your wife needs from you is love. To which every guy in the room looks at me and goes, yeah, okay, what are you trying to tell me? Well, I'm trying to tell you that love does not necessarily mean what you think it means. Women want their husbands, by and large, to be wide open and have a deep connection with them. One of my wife's favorite comments when we were early in our marriage was she wanted to crawl inside my head and figure out what I was thinking. Because as closed off, withdrawn, introverted, awkward, everything I am, anyone who knows me deeply knows me to be, I am an open book compared to where I was when I first got married. Lord help you, if I could say more than 10 words at a time, you were doing fantastic. Imagine how frustrating that is to be in a marriage, especially a young marriage. God, it's a miracle from God that I am still married. (laughs) My wife is an incredibly long-suffering woman, and even as I just said, she didn't suffer me that long. (laughs) She even had her breaking point, but she is a saint. Women want their emotions to be understood. They don't necessarily want the facts analyzed. (laughs) I just got an amen from a woman in the group. (laughs) Guys, let me tell you, if your wife comes in and gives you this long list of things that happened today, and your response is, well, if you just did this, "Eh, wrong answer. You are not doing it right. She doesn't care what the solution is. She cares that you care. Biblically, a woman needs to be keeping the household functioning as a partner and a support for the husband. Now, as I said earlier, men by and large in our culture, are failing as the spiritual heads of their household. And therefore, they're keeping their wives from being as effective in their role because the wives have to pick up that slack. Now, to every wife out there who has picked up their husband's slack as the spiritual head of their household, thank you. You know what? It's a role that needs to be filled. And I am sorry on behalf of the men in your life that you had to do that. But you know what? You kept your household going. You kept the faith strong in your family. And so with that, I will say thank you. You did a job that was not yours to do because it needed to be done. So let me back this idea up in Ephesians 5. You all know exactly what passage I'm about to say. But look at it from the perspective of what I just said. Wives, respect 
your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now, I forgot to put this in the handout, so I'm going to back up just a sec while I'm thinking about it. Guys, same thing. If your wife's not getting the love she needs at home, she's going to look for it elsewhere. And it can be with friends, it can be with a puppy, it can be with whatever it is. If you're not giving her the love she needs, she is going to find that need fulfilled. So in Ephesians, Paul gives us two basic commands. Husbands, we're commanded to love our wives because our natural inclination is to give her respect. So to crib off a five love languages a little bit here again, what's one of the first things you learn in that study? You give love the way you want to receive it. Well, if we back this up to a little more meta thing here, if we back this out to ingrained personalities, we are going to give in the relationship what we most want to receive. By the same respect, wives, we're commanded, you're commanded to respect your husbands because your natural tendency is to give them love. Paul didn't put this in Ephesians just for to say he said something. God knew very much what we were naturally inclined to do. And like everything else that deals with God, what we are inclined to do is probably wrong. So God has to teach us another better way. And so in this way, God tried to teach us something different here. The marriage is so pivotal for the home. I cannot overemphasize if he can if the enemy can drive a wedge between a husband and a wife. The household is no longer any good. He has done his job. Especially if it's a situation like I was in where we were together but we weren't. That's the most effective thing because I was so blinded in my own stupidity to think I was doing the will of God while pushing her as far away from me as I could. And you know what? The enemy was cackling with more joy than I could ever imagine in that situation.
Why? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And with this, you will put up a greater fortress against the enemy, practicing that proper intimacy in your relationship. Now, there's way more to it than this, but I wanted to keep it simple, keep it something we could easily do. Because in this way, we are going to most honor God. Because Paul himself said it in the passage, the marriage is a perfect metaphor for God's love for us. If you have any silent witness in your life, a strong, godly marriage is the greatest one you have. It, to me, and into Scripture, is the witness you can do day in and day out without having to say a word to the outside world. And I think that is all part of God's plan because God tells me in His Word it is part of His plan. The church and the home. Two places God has given us out of His infinite grace and mercy for our betterment, for our joy, for our endearment, for our encouragement, for our accountability. But our enemy is good at what he does. And he's been doing it longer than we've been here, and he will continue to do it long after we're here. And so he is great at twisting everything God gives us against us. And it's not even about us. Because every time he attacks us, he's not attacking us. Again, we don't matter to him. Every time he hurts us, it's not for the sake of us. It is for the sake of hurting God. And so let's take this, go out, and keep him from hurting our God.